On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses Russia's counterparts. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, at this point at least, I'm joined by my very good friends Tom Corcoran and Ken Gregory. Paul Zotter may or may not be along as time allows. In this episode, we are going to continue on with our discussion of Rush and their 1993 album, Counterparts. This evening's episode of Progressive Palaver, where we finally get to discuss Russia's counterparts. Just to take care of the business at hand, um, Counterparts was released in October of 1993, produced by Peter Collins and Rush, released on the Anthem and Atlantic labels, featuring the now standard lineup of Getty Lee, Alex Lifeson, and Neil Peart. Track listing includes Animate, Stick It Out, Cut to the Chase, Nobody's Hero, Between Sun and Moon, Alien Shore, The Speed of Love, Double Agent, Leave That Thing Alone, Cold Fire, and Everyday Glory. Counterparts is the 15th studio album by Canadian rock band Rush, released on October 19, 1993. Counterparts is one of Russia's highest charting albums in the U.S., peaking at number two. The lyrics of Counterparts continue the trends of Roll the Bones, with dark and emotional themes being the primary focus. Some songs are heavy-sounding, such as Animate and Stick It Out, which topped Billboard uh, album Rock Tracks chart for four weeks in late 1993, becoming the band's fifth single to do so. Leave That Thing Alone earned a Grammy nomination for Best Instrumental Rock Performance. It has been reissued and remastered twice, once in 2004 as a continuation of the Rush Remasters series, and again in 2013 as part of the box set, the studio albums, 1989-2007. As I was reading that, I was struck with the idea, because we always end up talking about the uh, the instrumental track that Rush seems to enjoy. Do they record instrumental tracks just so they can be nominated for Grammys repeatedly? Is is that their game here? <laughs> I think that they keep doing it until they actually win because I, I I don't think they've actually won one. Right? I think they're always nominated. Am I correct? Yeah, I, I, I don't re- I don't recall seeing that they've actually won one, but because it's always um, it's always they've been nominated. And you know they lose to whoever, but I just, I, I, I just, it's, it seems funny. I was watching a, a short video. I, I found something on Twitter, and you know I, I try to sort of keep my my eye open for things that may that that may sort of help us out here. And and it was it was an interview on some show. I don't even know what the heck it was with with Getty and Alec. And the the intro was amazing because they're going 
through all of the the Rush bona fides, right? And it's like, oh, they've been nominated for four Grammys, or whatever, and won countless Juno awards. <laughs> Wait, huh. Yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> we did cover I, that in a prior episode. <laughs> I think I'd be shocked if they didn't. Like, if if that if the Juno awards didn't come up, I think I'd have a heart attack. So yeah, you're referring to leave that thing alone. Uh, yes, leave that thing alone. Which you know, I I had said to you, Ken, what six eight weeks ago, that I thought leave that thing alone was the best instrumental of this era. I'm not going to say it's the best Rush instrumental, so no one right. throws sticks and stones at me. But I think you know from. You know, I what they didn't they didn't have one on Grace. Um, so from what Power Windows onward, I think uh, I, I just I love it. Well, I've been really looking forward to this because I think that this is the last great Rush album. I think this is the last uh, solid Rush album from start to finish. From here on out. After Counterparts, we get into shaky ground. And there are some great songs, and there are some great moments, but it's a little bittersweet because this is the sort of prime rush that I love. And I and you know will certainly debate this in the appropriate time, during the appropriate time, but this is the last of the great rush albums and there are many songs on here that i absolutely love and that that stay with me and I, that I, I go back to this album often so i'm very excited to talk about this album <clears throat> now i have a present for you guys a present we love presents uh, i stumbled upon something today a very interesting interview with Getty Lee. And Getty talks about something that really connects some of the things that we were talking about in prior episodes. Getty Lee was asked about how counterparts came to be and how they got Peter Collins back on board. They went back and talked to Peter Collins and they talked to Peter Collins because he had had since had more experience with American bands, namely ready for this, namely Queensryche. <laughs> Getty Lee said the word Queensryche. Isn't that? <laughs> That's pretty um, freaking cool. I, yeah. I was I was surprised at this. Uh, so they were looking for more of an American influence on this. Now, I don't know what that is anymore. Because um, I mean, most rock bands are British. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but they specifically wanted Peter Collins back into the fold because of since they had last worked with them, he had worked with a lot of American bands. And one of them, one of the bands that Getty said that they were really impressed with the sound of is Queensryche. 
And so they they brought Peter Collins back on board for for counterparts to give more of a a heavier feel. So when this is done, when Test for Echo is done, Peter Collins ends up having four albums produced with these guys. Power Windows, Hold Your Fire, Counterparts, and Test for Echo. And I would have to say that the production on all four of those, whatever else you may say about them, and I think three out of the four are phenomenal. But even Test for Echo, which we'll get to next time, and which you know causes me to have gastric upset, sounds in terms of its production it sounds fantastic uh you know peter collins and rush i think is is a really really powerful combination i i I really do i i enjoy this uh very much and you know again as we walked through this when we talk about these four albums you know power windows i always knew and appreciated but you know, maybe didn't appreciate it quite enough. Hold Your Fire, I never really understood until fairly recently, and now I'm like, oh, yeah. Counterparts, and I'll get into my story there, and, and the same thing with, with Test for Echo. When, you, when, when I look at them with, with a you know, mature-slash-old you know, perspective, I think they're just spectacular. So in terms of, of production, I have absolutely no beef with peter collins at all and i think probably of those four records i think counterparts is is the best and in terms of production and when you talk about production i think also this album you know we we talked on grace under pressure about that album being the nexus of rush because it was in you know the chronological middle in terms of number of albums and and there was a you know a definite shift towards where they're going but given where rush ends up and given where they were you know from grace under pressure to now this becomes sort of that pivot point and i think it's it's an excellent example ken you brought it up in the text you know the the first 3 songs are are a what you call it a, a a hard rock bait and switch, if I recall. Oh correctly. yeah, it's definitely some kind of a pseudo heavy metal, new metal bait and switch. They get you know pretty tough and gritty and loud and noisy, and then they go back to being rushed. Yeah, well, exactly. That that's exactly it. And so you know, you know, just to sort of semi briefly give my you know experience with this. Here again, I remember when this came out. I remember, you know, Stick It Out was the first single they released, and it was heralded as this this new, heavier Rush. Rush has their balls back. Isn't that great? And Stick It Out certainly would would lead you to believe that, right? And (laughs) and it was my memory of the time, much like... You know, I remember Hold Your Fire being nothing but a synth bath, which it turns out to not be. I remember Counterparts as this, you know, hard-rocking, monster, headache-inducing, whatever. But that's not really the case. And, and Ken, like I said, you, you said it perfectly with this bait-and-switch, because those first three songs, you can sort of convince yourself. And then, like you said, they, they just go back to being Rush. But with the difference... In my opinion, 
I just, I love the production on this album. I think everything has sort of, it, 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 it's sitting right at that balance point. I think, you know, the, the, the drums are meaty, but you can still hear what's going on compared to some of the later albums where it's all just a big bleh. And the, hey now. The, the bass sound on this album, oh. If Test for Echo gives me gastric upset, the bass sound on Counterparts is like having a freaking five-scoop Reese's Pieces Sunday, man. It is <laughs> sweet and just goes down smooth. Love it. Wow. Absolutely love it. That's funny. Well, now that uh, we have Mr. Zotter, I, I was wondering um, if uh, we could talk about 1993 in, in general terms and uh, kind of do that little bit, the historical bit. Yeah, let's get some context, Ken. Let's please. do it. As far as Peter Collins' context, when 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 was Mind Crime? Was that uh, 88? Mind Crime was 88, and then... Uh, or 87, or I can't remember, 87, 88. And uh, Empire was, of course, in 1990. So this would have come, you know, after that, which I think is yeah, quite Yeah, 1993 is pretty far away from that 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 era. So so in the world of prog rock, um, Dream Theater had Live at the Marquee, and Steve Howe had the grand scheme of things. Uh, Porcupine Tree, Up the Downstair, Tool undertow. Um, otherwise, you know, prog rock is is dying. We're not seeing what we used to see, and uh, we're getting all kinds of interesting things. I mentioned uh, Pablo Honey from uh, Radiohead, and um, fumbling towards ecstasy. Oh, all kinds oh. of. What so, a album. Sorry, I just yeah. I hear fumbling towards ecstasy, and I kind of lose it a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So it, 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 it was a very interesting time, uh, where, where, where where we uh, certainly went into the Radiohead era, if you want to call it that. And I remember seeing that Counting Crows had their August and everything after, and it got a lot of radio play, and it's just a different sound on the radio, just kind of a different culture. And can and, uh, what in Europe, Nirvana? So this is the big yes. one for them. There you go. I was going to say, what what's what are more of the grungier type records that are gracing the airways at this stage of the game? Exactly, exactly. I think we hit 1993 before in in in, in the context of other bands. It's just interesting to do it in terms of Rush. Yeah. Well, you know, for me, it's I like the context that you're providing there, Ken, because I think it goes. Uh, really well with the point that I wanted to make around the, this phenomenal production that Joe was was just uh, blavering about. My goodness, Joe is just all over this this album. I love it. Um, I don't think after after Roll the Bones, I think we all breathed a big sigh of relief when we heard the the guitars screeching through. Um, in the low bombastic tone of uh, "Stick It Out" when we heard the single, and I agree with you, Joe. I think the production is big; it's giant. The guitars are monster. The bass sound is phenomenal, and you hit it right on the head. The drums sound fantastic, 
And while I do believe this was Russia's first entry into the, the volume wars, they still managed to deliver the sound without this annoying, overriding, sort of monotonous, low mid-range hum that just gets in the way of the rest of their albums from here on out. Mm-hmm. And, um, <laughs> and it's, it's, really, it's really great. The thing that I've always kind of not liked about the production of Counterparts is that I really feel that from while I know that there are a lot of comparisons to like the police and some other new agey things maybe in like Grace Under Pressure, I really felt like Rush had their very own sound from Grace Under Pressure. Actually, you know, all the way from, you know, their back in their, their days, right? Once they started doing sort of the more of the prog era stuff. They always had their own sound, and it kept evolving, and I felt like it kept evolving. Even through Presto and Roll the Bones, they were evolving to different places. When we hit Counterparts, I kind of feel like they were like, cool, Nirvana's got these raunchy guitars, Pearl Jam's got raunchy guitars, Soundgarden, all these bands. Let's just crank the guitars up, and, and let's go ahead and, and, uh, and kind of... And for the first time, to me, Rush just kind of fits in with everyone else and um from a production standpoint i don't think they're they're breaking new ground or taking what's current and taking it to a new place they're just sort of for the first time just kind of fitting in but i guess the uh the, the thing about this album is uh i don't know if i disagree with you but the thing is with counterparts they have the good songs and that's the important thing um if they're sort of holding their ground production wise mm. Uh, I think it's successful. Um, they they may not be breaking ground, but I think this is a very successful album because they still have the songwriting, and you have those moments where you're just like, yes, yeah. It, it is. There's some monster moments for sure because every time I went to listen to this to prepare for tonight, I really kind of did it begrudgingly like i was like oh i don't want to listen to this album again but like i i put it on when i was cleaning out my garage on saturday and i was singing along to every song and you know loving it so you're right the songs certainly sort of hold true uh through the test of time although song by song it's funny i you know i think i look at them the title and i'm like yeah i don't want to listen to that now nah, i'll just go to the next song yeah i'll just <laughs> skip this album altogether one of the things that I was thinking as I was preparing for this, and I'm looking right now, this is a 54-minute album. And when I listen to it, there really isn't any point where I'm like, oh, God, is this over yet? You know, I, I think it's, it's, it's strong front to back. And even in those places where things get a little... Goofy, honestly, I think this album is a high watermark from the production value, but also lyrically. And especially given the things that I'm going to say next episode, the the oftentimes, you know, if there's a song that maybe I don't really care for that much, chances are their lyrics on this album 
in that song that will sort of keep my interest. And I think Cold Fire is an, an excellent example of that. Cold Fire musically is probably not my favorite, but I absolutely freaking think the lyrics kick ass to the point where I'm so happy listening to it. <laughs> I, just, I just stumbled across uh, one of the engineers that Neil credits in the uh, tour book, and I recognize the name right away. Uh, uh, somebody, I, maybe Peter Collins brought him in, but Kevin Shirley did a lot of work for uh, Dream Theater and uh, the Black Crows, and uh, it's relatively er early in his career that he jumps on uh, counterparts. That's, that's pretty cool. Uh, he went on to... Uh, do some really cool recordings. All right, let's do animate though. Come on, it rocks. Let's do it. Yeah, well, of course it rocks, and and that's what it's designed to do, right? Yep. Yep. It yeah, it's the goods. And there's something very cool about just the calm, subtle count in at the beginning of the of the track. You know. And then the just the giant drums just kick your ass at the beginning. It's very cool. There's just a lot of great space in this song. It's just like there's just moments where you're you're able to really take in the production because there isn't so much going on. It's not too fast. Uh, it, it, there's just like the the song itself uh, is 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 perfect for the actual production uh, because it just gives you that that space where you can actually appreciate what you have uh, because it's just it's not busy and i'm not not saying that rush is overly busy a lot of times but i'm saying that this song uh, it just gives you that right amount of of instrumentation and and notes to just really sit back and and just depreciate everything that that's that's coming in there there's a note here on one of our favorite sites rushvault.com that says neil in his book roadshow says the line daughter of a demon lover derives from the line quote woman waiting for her demon lover end quote in Coolidge's poem kubla khan which formed the basis of xanadu ah fucking right on man <laughs> that's cool nice Man must learn to rule his tender parts. <laughs> yeah, that's a weird one, isn't it? That's, that's a weird line he got there. He was, he was getting real creative. You know, I also find the, um, the line, uh, man must learn to gently dominate, I think is the word. I find that to mm -hmm. be yes. perhaps um, surprisingly sexist for Neil Peart. Uh, at this time and at any time in the career, possible. Well, yeah, the song comes off a little sexist in general. So, and and I wasn't necessarily going to get into this, but you guys kind of led us there. Again, going back to RushVault.com, there is an interesting quote from Neil on this: "Animate is not about two individuals, but about one man addressing his anima, his feminine side." as defined right. by Jung. Within that duality, what, quote, a man must learn to gently dominate, quote, is himself, his own submissive trait, while also learning to gently dominate the animus, the male thing. 
and the hormone-driven things like aggression and ambition. We dominate by not submitting, whether to brute instinct, violent rage, or ruthless greed. Well, there it really? is. The record has been set straight. <laughs> which which the- personality does he put forth on Stick It Out? <laughs> <laughs> well, he happens to have a really good quote about Stick It Out, too, Ken, since you want to go there. <laughs> oh, no. Actually, there, there, and and you know the the beauty that is RushVault.com has two killer quotes on this. So Neil describes "stick it out." It's just a play on the words, really. "Stick it out," meaning both a kind of arrogant display, "stick it out," but also the endurance thing. If you have a difficult thing to endure, stick it out, and you get to the end. It was the pun on both of those, really. So, again, the duality in the song is a bit leaning both ways. Okay, cool. But here's what Getty has to say about Stick It Out. I love the riff. It's a, it's a great riff song. I love playing it, and it's, very, it's a very bass-heavy song, which always makes me happy. Lyrically, it's kind of so-so. I don't know. We've talked about how human they are and how funny they are and how they play the Three Stooges in their concerts. And, you know, yeah, they're all different levels of uh, sincerity here. Two, the first two tracks are just, the, the, we've talked about the, song, the, the, the drums, the guitar and bass are just phenomenal. I do have to just say that um, as, as wonderful as the production is on Animate, the song has just kind of over time has bored me to tears and it didn't take me too long to get there. I remember seeing this tour and when they started playing animate, I left to go to the bathroom because I was like, perfect. I've got like six and a half minutes. <laughs> so I ran down the steps of the spectrum to, uh, to the, the concourse to go to the bathroom during animate. So I always think of that. I stick it out. And then the song that follows immediately Really, in some moments, the guitar sounds so much like the guitars on Empire, Queensryche's Empire. It's a little unnerving to me. Um, really? I think so, yeah. Cut to the Chase is the song. Yeah, Cut to the Chase, which is, which is a good one. And it was funny, too, because I remember people criticizing Queensryche, or not maybe criticizing Queensryche, but commenting that Queensryche wanted to add a little bit more of that progressive flair so they went and got Peter Collins, who just came off of doing Power Windows and Hold Your Fire, to, uh, <laughs> to do Mind Crime and Empire. And then Rush took him back. And so they're trading off of each other, it seems. If we're still talking about Stick It Up, I, I've always liked the song. But I have to say, it's sort of like if Rush was to do like the sort of like the standard rock song if they were ever going to do it like a standard hard rock song, I think stick it up is that it's still good. Like to me, this is almost rush doing a cover of something else. I, I think that this sticks out. Ah, this uh, uh, sticks out a little bit <laughs> different than what you would think of as a rush song and again 
uh, maybe that's why I like it because I haven't heard anything like this from Rush. But I don't know if it this would be my favorite song on the CD because it's just so sort of like standard, like stock almost. I I I if I had to use a word, Tom, I would describe it as obvious. Okay. I would I, not, I would accept that. Not obvious rush as you described, but obvious for the genre that they're trying to create here. It did seem at, at times where Getty may not have been 100% sure of uh, what he was supposed to sing and he just uh walked up to the mic and thought about it and just went pendulum swing, you know, like <laughs> There's some there's some goofy stuff going on. Uh and somehow they, they, you know, and it's just that just that's that riff is just giant. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of brings, I mean, it, they, kind of brings it all together. Yeah. I mean, they, they pull it off because I'm always excited when I hear the song, but it, it definitely doesn't have some of those rush moments that you expect it to have. Um, yeah. it, it's, it's more like a, a rush knockoff song. <laughs> they stuck it out but, and pulled it off. But, but but it is it's part of the bait and switch. So you know, I think it accomplished it accomplished what they wanted to do. And I mean, if you think about it, you know, I'm sure. You know, here again, if you are someone, and I don't know how old you would have been. I can't do math in my head. But if, if you were someone who, as a teenager, got into 2112 and had suffered through, you know, and I say suffer with air quotes because I think it's fantastic, suffered through, you know, signals and grace under pressure and hold your fire and, and, and all of that. And suddenly they release this single on the radio and you're like, all right, yeah, Russian truck out, all right. <laughs> Uh, I can see where it would have accomplished what it wanted to accomplish. Yeah, that's a it's a good point, Joe, because we've talked before about you know our favorite band to bust on for poor single choices, King's X. You know how you know they would release an album with all of these different things, different sounds that we never really had heard before, and yet they pick the most obvious King's X sounding tune (laughs) as their single. And yet, you know, here Rush does the exact opposite. They take, they take probably the song that sounds least like any other Rush song they've ever done, and they release it as their first signal to announce their new album. I mean, it's provocative. So that takes us to cut to the chase. You know, we shouldn't have to read tour books. We shouldn't have to like read the lyrics so 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 deep. You know, like like with Rush, it's like I don't know. Just think of like. Spirit of the radio. You just, you didn't have to read anything. You didn't have to think anything. You didn't have to analyze it. You just knew it was amazing. So I think those moments are kind of gone in this era. Amen. Amen. Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't disagree. Now, cut to the chase. As I was preparing for this and listening, you know, to to this album multiple times with what passes in my small little brain as a certain amount of 
of purpose, cut to the chase, struck me as, and tell me if anyone else thinks this, Dreamline Part 2 for some reason. Hmm. Hmm. No one else got that. Okay. Well, I don't, I don't know why. There was just something about the feel and the lyrics that just sort of took my brain back there. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, now that you mention it, I can kind of uh, kind of see the connection there. I, I never made it before, though, myself. I um, The song, that, that just the whole groove during the verses are just... Um, you know, the, like it just, you could just walk around the office all day with that song in your head. And <laughs> who's to say? And, I yeah. And like, there's a little bit of key, like organ. They actually use like an old school organ kind of in there, which is, which is pretty awesome. And, um, you know, you know, we're all, we've already introduced too many Gettys. Um, and there have been several Gettys already um, in this album, and I think this song, really, the 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 too many Gettys backing crew is is in full force. Um, but it's oh, just yeah. did a, we cover the too many Gettys, or was that only in our text messages? I think we've talked about the too many Gettys in the um, in the in the previous uh, episodes. Although, okay, maybe, maybe I didn't join I you know guys, if, but yeah. I, I'm not sure if the too many Gettys parts were actually recorded in the recorded version of Roll the Bones or the unrecorded version of Roll the Bones. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> Who knows? Well, something tells me we're going to be getting back to that in a number of these episodes coming up. Yeah, so for sure. I think we'll have plenty of uh, multiple Gettys coming up. The, the, number goodness, episodes, the number of episodes going forward is going to be very limited, so keep that in mind. Yes. Well, you may be right. It's just a waste of time. I guess that's the <laughs> chance I'll have to take. You know, but the the um, I love I love sort of the overall sentiment of this song, and um, the middle section when he's like, "I'm old enough not to care too much." Man, the the freaking drums and the guitars yes. are just like blowing the roof off the top of the car when I'm driving. Um, this this is a killer track. And I think much more exciting than you know the first two overall. Um, just, but I, but I love it. I want to hear Dreamline now. That's a really good song. <laughs> it's kind of a better song than this song. <laughs> so you know, and there's there's one there's one stanza in here that I don't exactly know why, but I just I love it, so I have to call it out, and it's. I, I guess it's the second part of the first verse. It is the engine that drives itself, but it chooses the uphill climb, a bearing on magnetic north, growing farther away all the time. And then it goes into the can't stop moving. Oh, I just, ah, yeah, I, I don't know why. So, yeah, I, you know, I think, I think, you know, getting back to cut to the chase, uh, I, you know, I, I think this is a classic example of a rush song done extraordinarily well. Um, you know, there's, there's nothing else to say. I, I, I don't think you guys tell me. I love it. I, I it, it's definitely, um, it's, okay. it's great. It's it. 
it's right on board with how this album is one of my favorite albums and it's 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 right there in the middle of it now we get to something that is somewhat controversial here because i know rush listeners a lot of rush listeners in general apparently have a problem with alex lifeson and an acoustic guitar and they somehow whine like little bitches when <laughs> rush when 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 uh, there is an acoustic guitar in a rush song so uh here we are on track four nobody's hero and we have a beautiful acoustic guitar and no doubt some some little nitpicky rush fans are going to whine about the acoustic guitar uh i for one think it is used wonderfully in this song and um i think it's a it's a it's a great i think it's a great song i think the 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 chorus. What am I doing here? I actually. <laughs> I have a technical problem. Is that King's X? <laughs> no, it was um, it was Alien Shore. <laughs> oh. Uh, <clears throat> I love the the rich sound of this guitar track and uh, the, the the song in general, how it flows. Uh, it's such a beautiful chorus, and they use the acoustic guitar so great. I I give this song two big enthusiastic thumbs up. Paul, in Power Windows, you articulated very well the textures that um, Alex creates when he mixes acoustic and electric. Do you think he hit the nail on the head here? Yeah, you know, in the context of this album, I don't, I don't think it's as it's as textured as you know in the same way like it's i don't think it's as beautiful or deep or as rich as uh, you experience in those other albums i don't think there's as for me in in some of these songs and this is one of them there's not as much space in the mix and in the sound field but i do think that the interplay between the acoustic guitar during the verses and in, in the beginning and the um and the electric during you know the chorus, I, I I think it's fantastic. So so I don't know that I, I see it the same way that I did you know with the previous efforts, but I I think that the instrumentation is right on on, on this tune. Okay. Um, hey Joe, do you remember talking about the, uh, the, the the one tune? It's about an author in the beginning, and it's at a about a ballerina at the end. Uh, losing it, uh, losing it, losing it. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 in terms of formula, this is uh, another morality play with the uh, male at the beginning and the female at the end. So, I, I think it's a boring format. It's just kind of like this is part A chorus, this is part B chorus. Uh, but it's it's sincere. It's nice. It conveys well. Uh, I, I think in terms of the just the chords and the tonality, the jump from the verse to the chorus is a little odd for me. I, I think the chorus would stand alone in something a little simpler. I felt like they kind of cobbled together two train cars that didn't necessarily have to be hooked together. That, 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 
Yeah, I, I, I hear exactly what you're saying, and I agree with you. Um, because one of the things that I was going to say as I was thinking about talking about this song, the the I feel that the dichotomy you're talking about. I personally like musically the the verse parts. I like the melody. I like the way they're constructed, and I find the chorus to be much less satisfying. But yeah. they take it they, they they take it a step further because I also like when I listen to it and and tell me if I've got this wrong. In, in the verses, it's 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 a very strong representation of some direct connection between two people. You know, someone had an impact on someone else's life, and then they're gone, and the the person who's left is sad. It's it's very immediate. It's very intimate, and it's it's very well presented. And then when you go into the chorus, which musically is different and less satisfying now they're sort of in this worldly space where they're t talking about you know all these really heroic things so you're is it is it a song about everyday heroes who aren't treated like heroes or is it a song about true heroes who wind up on the news because they landed a crippled airplane you know it it, it can't decide what the hell it wants to be and, and so yes. yeah i'm i'm on board yeah, yeah. Yeah, so back to Tom's point, there are some great possibilities here. I, I just don't feel that the possibilities were delivered. It, 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 it keeps me interested. It keeps me on the edge of my seat, but I'm a little disappointed. And, but, but at the same time, it's not, you know, and I think Tom also talked to this, it's not a bad song. It's good enough to keep you listening, even though maybe it doesn't go quite as far as it could have. It, it could yeah. have been, it it could have been, you know, fully transformative. But yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's it's funny because I really I, the, the lyrics really strike me in this. I love so many things about them. Uh, for one thing, you know, I joked around the rhyming at the beginning, but in the second verse, you know, I didn't know the girl, but I knew the family. All of their night, all of their lives were shattered in a nightmare of brutality. Even just the the words and the way the mel the melody and the rhythm of those words fit in the song to me is just incredible, and yeah. I I think I think Neil is it, I really do think he's he's really on his game in this album. Yeah, I do. yeah, and and I like you know I love that idea. You know, you're talking about you know someone who is is you know battling the the stereotypes of of sexuality. And you're talking about a family who's dealing with something that just a nightmare that happens to their family. And, you know, they are talking about, he is talking about, you know, peop, you know everyday people that no one knows, but they're, they're heroes to everyone around them, right? And, like, it's, it's, he's sad that they're gone. And he was like, but you know what? They're, they're nobody's hero, even though they're, even though they're my hero or they're heroes to those around them. They're, they're nobody's hero. And he goes on and on and talks about what a real hero is. And then he makes the comparison of, you know, your Tom Cruise type or your whatever, you know, and, you know, your models or your actors or your sports players and how everybody is buying people who really aren't worthy of being our heroes. You know, the, 
you know, everybody's buying nobody's hero. I, I think the interplay between, you know, that phrase, again, um, you know, in the same line of the counterparts, it gives you, you know, the different perspectives of what heroes means to different people. Which brings us to Between Sun and Moon. This is, yeah. This is where this album starts to get interesting for me. And, you know, there are a couple of these songs which I think shouldn't play well, but yet they do. And Between Sun and Moon, I think, is is one of them. I, I don't know... Like, like, just think about... Think about the whole chorus thing here with the ah, yes, to yes, to ah, ah, to yes. What? How does that actually work? But, <laughs> but yet, I'm sitting in my car singing it like a fucking lunatic. So, yeah. you know, you, you guys tell me. Now, you know, no one can hear him, but I can see him. Paul, <laughs> dude, that is so true. You are right on the money. I'm, I feel exactly the same way. That's so awesome. <laughs> it's, 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 it's somehow amazing to me, but you know, and, and even, even with that, um, you know, I don't really know. And, and maybe I should look up what Neil's writing about here between sun and moon. And while I think that that chorus is a little goofy, I, I, and I don't, I have no clue what the verses are about. I dig what the words. I just dig them. I, I don't know. Yeah, there, I have no there, idea what this there, song's about. And you know, there, there are some it, things it, you just have to sort of accept in life. So let's see what the interwebs have to say about this. Maybe we can answer this. What does anyone else feel about this song? Yeah, it's doing like uh, very classic rock, ACDC sounding pedal on the, you know, this, this, the first chord. And then you think it's going to stay in that tonality. And it, it doesn't. They go uber major into a key change and you're like, oh, that's goofy, but it's rush. I can take it. And then they take that whole thing up like a whole step. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Where are you going with that? Where are you going? <laughs> Come on, guys. Reel it on home. You know, that, 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 that's, a, that's a compositional technique for, for, for off-Broadway. You know, it's a little <laughs> weird. <laughs> that's interesting, Ken. I like that. I, I, you know, for me, I think that the, the sun and moon, the, 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 you know, it's just sort of a metaphor. You know, he says it's the space between whisper and shout, the uh, place between wonder and doubt. Um, you know, I think it's 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 the description of there is a moment between whatever the idea is and whatever the action around that idea is, and and he's he's sort of talking about that interplay. And I think that's what the ah uh, yes to yes is is that. You know, at some point in time, you know, the spark catches flame, the idea becomes action, and, you know, you go from ah to, to yes. I don't know. Um, I probably would like this song overall a lot more if they hadn't used it for the theme to Beavis and Butthead. Um, they did? Because it, kind of, it just kind of ruins it. 
for me. No, they no they didn't actually. But I I think it sounds exactly like the uh, the Beavis and Butthead uh, cartoon theme. Is that an A chord? That first thing in the yeah. Beginning? I, I think it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's very A sounding, and it's it, it's like it's like that non-committal rock and roll A. It's like. This could be major, it could be minor. Oh, it's just like a rock blues kind of a thing. You know, like, okay. Uh, you know, as as is often the case when we're stuck on something, RushVault.com runs to the rescue. There's a quote here by a Robert Teleria of Merely Players. Um, this song is co-written with Max Webster, lyricist Pi Dubois who had written a poem, There is a Lake Between Sun and Moon. Lakes are important Egyptian symbols as they represent the occult. Water was considered between life and death, formal, informal. And the lake always symbolizes self-revelation in its reflective qualities. Phrasing inspired by the T.S. Eliot poem, The Hollow Men, and music inspired by The Who. Neil then goes on to expand on this. He says, Tom Sawyer, of course, was co-written with Pi, and Force 10 on Hold Your Fire was too, and I really like his style of writing. It's inscrutable to me sometimes, as I think it is to other people. But at the same time, it has a certain power in his images and writing. And also, there was some strange symbiosis that seemed to affect the song. When Pi was involved in Tom Sawyer and in Force 10, it made them somehow a little different musically. You know, his percolation through me. I would get his ideas, and then I would add mine to them and structure it as a Rush song, and then pass it along to the other guys. Even through that chain of events, somehow, there was some outside influence that was good. So we've always kind of kept the open door to Pi's ideas. Anytime he had anything, anything to submit, he would send it along to me, usually scrawled in an exercise book. And in this case, um, that was one we all responded to. So again, I went to work on it, shaped it up into a kind of structure that we like to work with, and then added some of my own images and angles, and so it went. So, you know, the fact that we have no clue what the frack is going on here seems to be completely genuine and allowable. <laughs> nice. You did manage to, to bring in a Battlestar Galactica reference, though. Well done, Joe. Did, did you like that? I was, I was I did. expecting Tom to, to catch on to that. but I, I did not. Wow, you guys are, you guys are on it. I, I think the chorus is something that we haven't heard before. I mean, set aside sort of the, the silly lyric, when you have that sort of heavy verse and you go into that extremely melodic chorus in that manner, uh, this is something that we haven't heard before. Now, I know every you could say that really about every Rush song because they always give you something new, but... Um, I always remember first hearing the song and just saying to myself, wow, this is, this is different. And to me, this is the epitome of the sort of 
heavy sound that I like. The 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 heavy open distortion and then the the really nice melody that 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 goes over it. And it's you were sort of debating whether what the song is about. No one really knows. But again, we we sort of touched upon it earlier. You know, we sort of sing along in our cars and we have a good time with it. And I think that's that works for me. And uh, this is a very, very catchy, singable uh, chorus that I have no problem um, not knowing what the hell it's about because I'm enjoying myself. So I think we're ready to go on to my favorite song on awesome. Counterparts, which is Alien Shore. Would you like to uh, bring us into that, Tom, since it's your favorite? I always have a more I always have a, a lot more difficult time talking about songs that I love than songs that I hate. I mean, this song again, uh, the production is just so wide open. It's it's just so warm, and the thing that I love about this song is the ending. It sort of has this um, climax, if you will. Um, and that, that, that ending where they're, they're, they're singing along at the end. I should, I say they, but it's, it's, it's Getty. <laughs> the, the Getty voices again. Um, yeah. Reach, okay, the reaching for the alien shore when, when he sings that over. It's just so well done. It's, 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 it's just such a, a great place. You build and build and build. And you're building to this moment. And when he, he starts singing reaching for the alien shore, it, it, just, it just really works. And uh, this is uh, you know, one of my favorite songs. Actually, I, this is my favorite song on 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 the album. I'm surprised how much it rocks. It really rocks. Um, when I think of the title and I think of the lyrics, I think that they're getting to something complex and over their heads. But when I just approach it from the music, it's very grinding, rocking, Neil's hitting the bell of the ride. They're kind of like down and dirty with it. It's got a really great, chunky sound and the palm mutes and everything. It's really good. Um, it just it just blows me away that they took a sensitive subject like this and married it with, you know, a little bit of a, a chunky grunge. They're definitely a step above grunge. I'll say that the thing that going on between Getty and Alex is whatever. I don't know. There's something really nice under there that keeps it moving. It doesn't plod like your typical grunge. It's definitely got a lot of life in that in that dirt. I I hate to to be the guy who does an entire podcast by just reading RushVault.com because I've done that now for the last four songs. However, have you guys seen this one for Alien Shore? No, sir. The entry for Alien Shore is fucking off the charts. 
So apparently Alex had appeared on the album Alien Shores by Platinum Blonde eight years before. And if you don't know who Platinum Blonde is or were, Platinum Blonde was a new wave band that was sometimes called the Duran Duran of Canada. Okay. <laughs> it does sound familiar. So, so I guess Alex played on a couple of... of um, he played guitar solos on a couple of their songs. <laughs> With, <laughs> I just, I don't, I didn't expect that. Um, well, I asked back in the uh, in the previous episode, was it Power Windows? I asked if, if maybe there was some kind of. Uh, 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 you know, synergy with with Rush listening to Duran Duran. So yeah, absolutely. I, and so yeah, they don't was, do pop music; they take it all in. That was yeah, that was that was the deal. So then Neil has a couple of quotes in here. You know, he sort of balanced that out. You know, that's that's and and we've talked about this before the the, the sort of innate duality of of Rush, where they're they're. Their music is is very focused and it's it's technical and it's awesome and it it kicks you in the face and, and you know Neil has absolutely no fear about tackling any subject matter in his lyrics, but at the same time the guys are kind of goofy, right? So you're you're balancing this out. So we'll, yeah. we'll take we'll we'll take the the Duran Duran of Canada and balance that out with with Neil's quote on, on the lyrics. Dualities like race or sex are not opposite, but true counterparts, the same yet different, and not to be seen as some ex existential competition. Polarities are not to be resisted, but reconciled, reaching for the alien shore. And he goes on to say, not everything lives up to its potential, quote, on counterparts, but I like the lyrics to Alien Shore particularly. So, there you go. Yeah, I, I, again, the groove, like you said, Ken, the bed underneath the verses, uh, another, another groove you can walk around with the song in your head all day. And, um, you know, it's pretty catchy. And, and, and Tom, I agree with you. You're right on, man. Like the end part when they bring it on home around with the turnaround to the reaching for the alien shore just adds that extra depth that extra dimension that that rush gives us in in these songs and it's um it is a great a great track and it's got that really ambiguous voice at the beginning that before it kicks in which i think is just goofy but really cool at the same time ken i might take issue with you bringing up the word grunge in this song <laughs> Where are we going with that? I mean, it's do you really think that this song, song? Well, I know it was in that era, but I'm I'm still trying to piece together you saying the word grunge and Alan Shore. I, I'm I don't get grunge in this song. It's a rocker, but it's a slightly slower rocker. Like it starts off with Neil beating on the bell of the ride. It's got like that. Yeah. That, I felt like what I got from Ken's comment was that they were, they were um, like this song, they create a different kind of feeling, different kind of movement that I think 
ele- is elevated above what most grunge bands were doing in this day. That's that's kind of what I took his comment to be. Um, oh, okay. All right. I mean, during the the solo, I'm listening to it now, and like you can you can either count it like bam 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 bam, but it's also got a little bit of a laid back halftime feel to that. Um, you know, I, I kind of went went off on this stuff when we talked about power windows. Like, I, it's just interesting to me. Not just Rush, like any band. Like, like you know, are, are are you are you in it? Are you shaking your head up and down? Are you practically dancing? Are you are you in the moment, or or, or are you just kind of laid back and listening? And I want grunge is kind of like a. Yeah, I'm just kind of standing there listening to it with my hands in my pockets kind of thing. When, when this song starts out, I feel like I'm just some dude in a jean jacket with my hands in my pockets. Just like, all right, bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Paul, you mentioned that that voice in the beginning. Apparently, the voice in the beginning is Alex holding his nostrils closed, saying, quote, out of my nose. <laughs> I, just, I just read the stuff that I find, man. I don't know. So, moving along, the speed of love is fascinating. Because, again, I think this is, this is a song that I shouldn't really be interested in. I, there, you know, I, is it, I, I, I don't know. I'm going to sound just crotchety at this point, but it, it just seems, you know, a little mundane, but at the same time, I totally enjoy listening to the song and I, I'm never sitting there going, God, is this over yet? I need to get to the next song. You know, I, I think it just it sort of sums up even even when this album isn't at its best, it's still very, very consumable. I, I agree with that. I agree with the fact that, you know, even a mediocre song like this is still above average. It's 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 still great. Um <clears throat> this is my least favorite song on the album. I think again I'm still rocking with it and I'm singing along and I'm having a good time, but it's, I think that this is more, it seems like it's more of like a demo of the song. I think that this is like, like the first version they came up with and they just had a lot of sweet sounds to it. Um, I think that the chorus in particular, if you listen to the chorus, you have these sort of like very legato, like, drawn out chords and then which is fine but then the the melody does the same thing and there's a little too much space and maybe if it was a different band it wouldn't bother me but i'm just i'm not comfortable with that much space in our in a rush song and um that might be kind of trivial and superficial but it just doesn't it sounds a little too rough and there's not really if one thing it it, 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 it's one thing if a guitar is going to be spacious 
And it's one thing if the drums are just going to be spacious, but there has to be something that sort of moves in a different direction. And the vocals don't do that. The vocals sort of stay in that same, the exact same pocket as the guitar. And you know, the bass doesn't really do anything in the song. So it just, yeah. it, it's, um, you know, generally I don't like piecing together these things and being overcritical about stuff like that. But I mean, the song kind of falls flat a little bit. It, yeah, I think it, it's one of the limitations of a trio. I, w I would say that there are other cases where, you know, Getty's vocals may not be as independent. And it's amazing because I, he is one of the, when you talk about independence and uh, his ability to play and sing at the same time, he, it's absolutely stunning. But, you know, compositionally, he doesn't completely separate himself from the rhythm section the way a Hogarth would, you know? Well, you know, just completely composing totally different vocal lines from line to line. You know, Getty's more of a repetitive singer who's kind of locked in. Well, I mean, when, when Hogarth does it, at least you can take a nap. <laughs> Oh, Joe, come on. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think both of those are pretty, pretty strong analyses of the song. I, uh, and I, I kind of agree with all of those points, although I don't think I've ever thought about that before. I think I've just always, you know, when it, you know, I've liked the song and I like how it sounds, but when it comes to Rush, this just isn't my cup of tea. Okay, so we've reviewed this song at the speed of love, right? Very quickly. Yes. Now, I, I have the impression, based on some, some sort of circumspect comments at the beginning, that this next song may cause a bit of controversy, and I may step into a big pile of vapor trails when I say, I quite enjoy Double Agent. Hmm. Is this the one where he talks through it? Yes. Yeah. This Which for me, the song is the song is just goofy. The the riff's giant, and um, the song is just goofy when he goes, when he says, "My angels and demons at war," and then the vocals come in with, "At war." I mean, I just can't. I just can't really deal with it. Um, I just think it's goofy. <laughs> and, well, and, yeah. and, and you're you're absolutely right. And I I don't. I can't argue against that at all. It's not quite goofy to the level of the rap section in Roll the Bones, but it is in the neighborhood. I, I, I'm with you, Joe. I, I still enjoy the song. I mean, it is goofy, uh, but it. I mean, Rush makes things so interesting. Uh, I mean, they're always putting you on the edge, and I think... I'm like, you know what? Um, Getty's doing something different here. He's talking through things, and I feel it's innovative. I mean, I mean I'm not saying that it, you know it's never been done before, and I'm, I'm not saying that it's you know it's completely original, but it's done in a way that I'm I'm very happy with, and I'm, I'm uh, at no point. Oh, I, sorry. I, I was just saying that this could be the most 
Queensryche in terms of the the tom toms and the guitar sounds and the, the the pacing of it. Like if you listen to the the, the cymbal accents that the punctuation that Neil's doing, I wouldn't be surprised if if Peter Collins whipped out the juice and said, "Guys, listen to this." Right before they tracked <laughs> Double Agent. <laughs> So I've I've got I've got you got to check it out and just don't listen to the vocals just just they're jamming underneath that. So I've got I've got a spectacular quote from Getty here on this song. Double Agent was a complete exercise in self-indulgent and really it was one of the last things we wrote on the record. We'd written all these songs that were heavily structured and were crafted and meticulously worked on this note and that note and this is a song we just wanted to kind of get our yayas out and just have a bit of a rave and really it's one of the goofiest thought songs i think we've ever written but i'm quite happy with the result in its own way i think it's an interesting little piece of lunacy i always get fixated on these these stupid little parts of songs and there's no real reason for it and for me what gets me is the where would you rather be anywhere but here when will the time be right? Any time but now. I just there's there's something about that that call and answer and the sort of you know indiscreet ambiguity about it that I just I love it. I, I don't know what it is. I just it gets my yayas out. It's you know it's it, it's one of those things that. That, that work. I mean, it's it's even like um, it, you, this a whole album is great with choruses. I have to say. I mean, this it, you have the most melodic choruses, and it doesn't matter. I mean, sometimes they're not as successful with the verses, but the fact that you have a chorus like that, and Joe, exactly what you just recited, you know. The chorus it's a beautiful melody and the fact that in the verse you know getty's talking but alex is doing just some really cool stuff it's not meant to be taken seriously and i'm glad that they don't so i'm i'm glad that you read that because it sort of reaffirms what we were all saying but it's just like let's just have fun with something and it's different than what we've heard before but you know what that that's rush we've been we've been doing that since day one hearing new things and um you know i would to me i I would rather hear something like that than a rap song Uh, yeah they've they've definitely they've definitely come a long way since the necromancer and the utilizing you know the the talking over the verses um (laughs) Right, but uh, but yeah, yeah. I'm glad that we heard that from Joe because it definitely uh, gives new light to well, uh, you know, the the idea around that song. Yeah, and you know the that that talking thing, it reminds me of something else, but I I can't for the life of me f- figure out what it is. It just sort of tickles my brain, but. I'm sure this isn't it, but I don't even know if you guys heard this, but years ago, after I moved to Boston, the first band I was in, it was like this hard rock band, 
we did a song like this and I was actually talking and then the chorus was singing and, and I don't even know if I, if I played that for you back in the day, um, that, that was actually before this album came out, but I, maybe that's why I have a soft, maybe that's why I have a soft, uh, you know, soft part of my heart for the song because I'm like, Oh, okay. <laughs> Tom, we, I think we'd all like to hear that, uh, that, that track, if you can dig it out. Um, it was, it's called the path to wonder. I mean, my nice. vocals are so hideous. I mean, cause it was a hard rock thing and I'm singing way higher than I should. So I'm probably, you know, <laughs> extremely embarrassed. Now, but now I definitely want to hear it. Joe. Now I definitely want to hear it. Joe, maybe, Hey, there he is. Thor. <laughs> Joe, maybe what if this song reminds you of, I'll try to, I'll try to see if I can give you a little taste of what it, what it might remind you of. Even in death, you still look sad. <laughs> no, I don't think that's it. <laughs> well played, though. I, I, I really, I'm enjoying this sort of Queen's right crossover here. This is kind of fun. Do we agree the next song is brilliant? Yeah, I, you know, I think it is. For me, and I just, Leave That Thing Alone is all about Getty Lee. I, uh, oh God! Yes, please, Getty, do do it some more. Do it some more. <laughs> Again, when we talk about the production qualities of these albums and or this album, and you know the the sort of perfect balance between between meatiness and and you know clarity of presentation. So you've got this rich, creamy, lovely bass tone. And and you can hear it and feel it all at the same time. And Getty is just oh, he's kicking ass. And so when you take when you take the the vocals out of of this, and you can just focus on the three of them doing the things that they do musically. Oh, it's just it's spectacular. Love it. Yeah, this gets at the independence that you like, Joe. Uh, Alex is doing the strums in the beginning. Neil's holding down the floor, and it leaves so much space for Getty. And there are more rests than notes, but the notes are gorgeous. And 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 you described it as a rich tone. It, it's like a full body tone. The the, the yeah, top full body. Of it, the plucky part is so good, and he plays heavier than most other bass players. Like, um, at least just as heavy as the heavy rock players he's got you know big hands and you, you just hear him when he does those fills how do we feel about this instrumental as compared to say the instrumental that's on presto i i i think this is the the best instrumental of this era absolutely that's my feeling i would agree with that how about how about the rest of you guys yeah i think you know, i they, like this they, one they better than in the later years, they resorted to doing medleys of some of the early songs. I don't know if you caught any of that on YouTube. Yeah. Saw them live. So, um, I, 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 you know, it, the, the composition of Leave That Thing Alone does kind of go weirdly from one section to another, but it works so well. Maybe it's a medley of itself. I don't know, but it's just I think they know what works live, and I think that that what we call 
you know, jerky or choppy sometimes is so perfect with the lights and the crowd and the cheering and the, you know, the different sections and jumping around. They did a great job. Yeah, I, I feel like this this instrumental is, is just in a little bit more, has a little bit more depth than the one that's on Roll the Bones. Um, particularly the middle section where the do 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 the way they they break that out and how it comes out of there yeah i i definitely like this one uh a notch above the one it's on presto or roll the bones i'm pretty sure the other instrumentals on uh roll the bones roll the bones so so this is this is interesting i was looking at the the grammy nominations and actually it was and I don't know how exactly the the timing works out on this, but they were they were nominated in what turned out to be the 1995 Grammys. Really? So it was Rush, Leave That Thing Alone, Dixie Dregs with Shape of Things, Santana with Lose More Evita, Joe Satriani with All Alone, and they ended up all losing to the winner. In 1995, for Best Rock Instrumental, Pink Floyd's Marooned. So, you know, it, it's not a bad thing to lose to David Gilmore. I, you know. Well, you know, well, we have something to talk about when we do uh, Pink Floyd. So that takes us into Cold Fire. I also said at the start of this episode, or the start of the previous episode, as this is probably going to end up being split into two, maybe, that I love Cold Fire from a lyrical point of view. I'm not convinced that musically it's my favorite, but I think the lyrics, I find the lyrics to be so strong that I just don't care. I want to listen to this song these lyrics, I can see everything that's going on, and I think the way that it's presented is extraordinarily is clever. The word I'm looking for, you know. So you know, it was, and, and so let's look at this. It was long after midnight when we got to unconditional love. She said, "Sure, my heart is boundless, but don't push my limits too far." So just in, in those four lines right there, one, he's, we, we've all had those experiences where we're, we're talking late into the night about heavy-duty things, and it's not always an easy conversation, and all you want to do is go to sleep because you're yes. exhausted, but you have to work through this. Boom. Yes. Got there. Been there, done that. He has communicated that very perfectly. But then the second half of that, you know, here he starts to play play his little word games and and when he's good at this oh my god is he good at this sure my she said sure my heart is boundless but don't push my limits too far which oh and he does that again and again throughout this um i said if love is so transcendent i just i don't understand these boundaries so here again you know it, it and and how i don't know if the way he presents this is from a guy's point of view, right? Because I, in my life, have often been terribly confused by, well, but it's this, so why this? But that's not the way the real world is. And I just, I love everything about the way these lyrics are put together. And Joe, I think what you're getting at here is he's almost using it 
ironically. Like, in, or he doesn't know if he's using it ironically. He's just stuck in this space where he's trying to figure out which way is up. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And and, and just to, to continue on, because I, I just want to read the, the next verse that really puts this together. So, again, he, it does the exact same thing. It was just before sunrise when we started on traditional roles. She said, sure, I'll be your partner, but don't make too many demands. <laughs> right. And then... I said, if, if love has these conditions, I don't understand those songs you love. She said, this is not a love song. This isn't fantasy land. I'll be around if you don't push me down too far. And you know, I, I, I just can't say it any better because, I, like I said, I've been, I've been in that situation where I'm like, but, but, and then you get what seems to be an irrational answer back at you, but that's their perspective and it's both sides are right it's it's wonderful absolutely love this song even though like i said musically i i don't think it's that great yeah but, but you know what joe I, I, the one thing about the music part that i'll say is that in those lines where you know she says you know this is not a love song this isn't fantasy land like that's usually where the musical break is where it comes into that main riff and i think yeah. the way they they use the music to accentuate those like just soul crushing lines that you can just picture being delivered. And, and um, I think it, it really transitions well. So, so um, maybe not the best riffs that have ever been written uh, by them, but certainly I think they use the music to um, complement the, uh, th these lyrics that you're talking about, which I agree are, are really good, really well done. Yeah. Cool. This makes me think of Blue Oyster Cult, specifically I'm Burning For You. And I okay. don't know if any of that was intentional, like the cold fire mixed with the burning. But it's done in a retro 70s groovy rock thing, which it, it's almost like, hey, we're going to play a 70s rockin' love song and we're going to twist it up for the modern ages and modern awareness. It's interesting. I, I love it when Ken is like, is like um, giving us his instant reaction to the song as he's listening to his, his iPhone right against his ear. <laughs> it's right it's like totally, totally unadulterated. It's just like the first thing that comes to his mind. It's perfect. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I just, I, 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 every time I'm listening to this album, and again, I, I, I don't, this, this is not an album where I skip through songs. I enjoy every last second of this album, generally speaking, but this is a song that I'm anxiously awaiting getting to. I don't skip to get there, but I can't wait to get there. Excellent. There are a lot of Gettys. At the end here. There, there, there are a lot of Gettys. <laughs> I, can, I can picture a social media ad, Tom, with, with you know, 50 Gettys all sort of lined up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, oh, and, the uh, solo is so good. It's a little bit of Livia Stranjata on this. That's why we need Colby on these episodes. He stands around for 15 minutes and then he yells out that one solo that's just brilliant. Um, but I'll be the solo guy on here. The, the, so, the solo on Cold Fire is, is 
sounds like all telly and it just like whines like like just he he comes in hard he doesn't start slow and he just starts like burning it's good stuff i'll tell you and keep talking dirty to me man (laughs) (laughs) you know some i mean this is a song that you know we were talking about how ken was saying you know the first three songs uh, are the heaviest and sort of melds out but I mean, this this is a pretty heavy song. I think this is as heavy as the the first three. I mean, maybe not stick it out, but I mean, some of these songs, and namely this one, um, we got some counterpart heaviness going on. I can almost imagine like Lindsey Buckingham crooning this one. It's so seventies, so interesting. I could see that. You know, Lindsey Buckingham always sort of, in my mind, sits on the out, the outer edge of all of this. It's it's like it, it's like he's walking around my house, and I can see him through the windows, but he never comes through the door. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, one of our cyberspace friends asked us to get into uh, Fleetwood Mac. We're going to put that on the back burner, but it's 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 like like you said on the perimeter. Yeah, I mean he he's there, and I, I've had you know Paul and I used to joke. I, I at one point I developed a fantasy of, of Lindsey Buckingham and Trevor Rabin doing an album together, and sort of fantasizing about what that would be. So, <laughs> there would be a lot of notes. Let's just say that. Lots of notes. Everyday Glory, finishing up the song. I'm fairly... I love sort of contradicting myself because it's fun. I've made made the assertion that from a... Certainly from a sound perspective, Presto exists outside of the Rush time-space continuum with the exception of Everyday Glory. I'm pretty sure Everyday Glory is is the the lost presto song sounds like it yeah it, lost it, it does, presto right? song okay I, when, I, when i hear it i i just i hear presto i i'm i'm taken i'm taken back several years in time right here at the end of this album going well this sounds like presto yeah not to not to put too too much detailed thought into it I, for me i feel like the verses really remind me of um, uh, Ghost of a Chance. It's got that sort of uh, you know piece. It's, it is sure. it is kind of a throwback to the last the last couple ones. I'm not a huge fan of this song. Um, it's just a little bit out there for me for Rush. Um, but you know it's it's one of those things where there's the, uh, the opportunity with these guys. Is their music is so many things to so many people and. Um, the, the message behind it is really great. And, and I remember seeing one of their documentaries, you know, on uh, documenting their last tour where there was a guy who had suffered pretty severe indi- uh, in, in injuries after a car accident and was incapacitated in the hospital and talked about how he listened to a lot of rush and this song in particular uh, inspired him you know, to get to 
to push through his therapy and to, you know, regain the ability to walk and, and do all that stuff. And, and, um, you know, so it's a pretty powerful song, but again, you know, ultimately not, not necessarily my cup of tea for, for a rush tune. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't have really anything else to say about everyday glory other than, like I said, it, it's just weird that I feel like I, it seems sort of out of pace with the rest of this album. Yeah. And I, I've, I've, I've gone and I've enjoyed, you know, the, the 48, 49 minutes, whatever it is up, up until this. And then all of a sudden I get in my time machine and I'm back in the middle of, of, of Presto or, or roll the bones. And it just, it's, it's kind of weird because the rest of this album is so forward looking to get this sort of, you know, backward glance and, and to have it at the end, it, it, it's just kind of, it, it, and it, but again, much like the speed of love, I don't dislike it. It doesn't make me, you know, say bad words. It doesn't make me turn it off. It, it's, pleasant enough and i i finish out the album and i'm i'm satisfied you know strangely i I think i can sum up my feelings on counterparts overall with this song is that um i i really didn't expect to like counterparts i never really want to listen to it and um every time i listen to it for this exercise like i said before i did i did so somewhat begrudgingly and yet every time I got into the songs, you know, I, I love them. They're great songs, and uh, I can definitely say more good than bad about them. And it's kind of like the same thing. Not, real my, not really my cup of tea, but, you know, every time I listen to the song, I'm like, yeah, that was a pretty good tune. I like that. So there you have it. Hmm. Mucho? Uh, it's... I could live without it. I mean, I think this album could be a strong 10 songs and without the song, you know, it would, I wouldn't, wouldn't change my life. I love cold fire so much. And, you know, the last few songs, I would almost rather end it on a, on a high note. I don't have a problem with it. I don't dislike it, but, um, I, I think that as much as I love this album, it could be one song shorter and you could just cut this baby off and it would be that much better. Yeah, it's no eyes of a stranger for sure. No. Nope. <laughs> well played, Paul. That yeah. is outstanding. Peter I, Collins reference and all. I think there's nothing else to say after that. You, you have closed this thing down, my friend. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Progressive Palaver, or as the case may be, these episodes of Progressive Palaver. Counterparts, obviously, is a high watermark among us here on the Palaver for Rush, and we certainly enjoyed sharing it with you, and we look forward to continuing the rest of the Rush catalog. 
as uh, always, we encourage your, your thoughts, your questions, your feedback, your comments, and answering any questions that we brought up during the, the podcast. You can reach us through social media on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. We are at ProgPala on each of those, or search for Progressive Palaver. You can also email us. Our email address is progpala at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is, as always, available for subscription and download on both iTunes and Google Play, and we are hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks so much for listening. Rock nice on. Work,